Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture is going to be from Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very heavy, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The word of the Lord. I have something of a evening routine. After we've eaten dinner, we wash everything up, it's time to go up to bed. We go up together, we both get ready, I brush my teeth, I'm in bed waiting. Lane, after then two hours of her preparing herself and doing her evening lotioning and all of the taking vitamins and everything that she does, she finally makes it to bed. And then, this is the most important part, we turn on Netflix, okay? We turn on Netflix. Almost every night we lay there and we watch another episode of one of our favorite shows. It's just sort of, it punctuates our life together. It's something that we've done since we've been together for a long time. We sat on the couch and watched TV every evening after I got home from work. It's our time. Those of you who know, when we go to Netflix, you turn it on, you see the previous episodes that have been played, but you also see the ones that have not been played yet. Well, I always get this sense of panic when I realize that I'm down to like one episode or two episodes of this series that we've really invested ourselves into, learning the plot and the characters. Sometimes while we're watching, we'll look things up on Google and we'll say, oh, did you know this this actor played in this or this person did this? And we get really invested in it. This last one we watched was particularly painful because on the last episode, it seemed like everything was actually going to get resolved according to the time allotted, one more episode until like the last line, and it opened everything back up again, and it obviously made a way for season two, right? And so I laid there in bed that night thinking, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder who's going to have this or who's going to do that. How are they going to resolve this? It was just crazy. It was this sense of incompleteness. What was supposed to be finished became something of an open-ended piece. I'm sure many of you uh, older ones 
uh, like me. Remember shows back in the day, 30-minute profile, they would frequently do the dreaded to be continued. I don't know how many times I saw that. I just, little kid, I'm so excited for my show. It's the new show. It's not a rerun to be continued. No resolution of the crises or the circumstances created in the sitcom's previous hour. The sense of incompleteness. The ending of a song almost on the second note when it begs to be completed. Well, today we're going to see something like that in the book of Mark. We're in Mark 16, 1 through 8. We've spent nine months in Mark. We have... Uh, What I did when I planned the series is I lined up Easter on today's passage and then went backwards and filled everything in that I needed to fill in in order to get to today. Because today, at least the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection, this is the climax of Mark's gospel. Now, if you have your Bible, open them with me. Um, You'll notice that when we read 16 through 8, there's more text after it. Okay, And in most of the Bibles that we read, there are going to be a hard line and a little note, or there'll be a little footnote. And this Bible, it's a pew Bible, says this. It says, the most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. So if that is true, and I think that probably is, I think that means that 9 through 20 is not the, the, the authentic ending of Mark. That means Mark ended his story with the women trembling, leaving in fear, and telling nobody about the resurrection. What a crazy place to end the story. Why would Mark, after all of the pains that he took, to tell the story of Jesus, end on a note so what seems to us to be off? I mean, if you look at the other Gospels, Matthew has the Great Commission. Therefore, all things have been handed to me. Go ye into the world, proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. You have Luke, the ascension, the rising of Jesus into heaven before 500 witnesses. At the end of John, you have the restoration of Peter and a proper conclusion where John says, if everything Jesus had done were put in the books, no, all the books in the world couldn't fill, uh, could be filled. So why does Mark have the women fleeing in fear and acting disobediently? I think the answer is quite simple. The story is not done. The story is not done. Maybe it's because Mark wants us to wrestle with the fact that the resurrection has implications beyond what any story could tell. Implications for us. That it's incumbent upon us to finish the gospel of Jesus Christ with our lives. And in our lives. And so let's look at the passage. I'm going to pick through the first eight verses, and then I'm going to give some thoughts afterwards about what are some of the implications for this in our life today. 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. This is the day after the Sabbath. In Jewish reckoning of time, a day started at sunset. So uh, one way they would do it is that, you know, if the Sabbath began on a Friday night, they would say it wasn't Sabbath until you could see the first star twinkling in the heavens. That indicated when the next day started, when the Sabbath properly started. Jesus hung on a cross on a Friday afternoon, the end of a day. If you recall from other Gospels, it says that because the Sabbath was approaching, which was a high holy day, the Passover, that they wanted to hasten the death of those who were being crucified, so the Jews Jewish leaders there asked the Roman soldiers to break the legs of those being crucified. In breaking of the legs, it made it impossible for those who were hanged there to lift themselves up to get their next breath. And it sped their death up. 
It's interesting that when the Roman centurion who was tasked with breaking the legs got to Jesus, they realized he was already dead. That actually was to fulfill a prophecy that none of his bones would be broken. And so they're trying to hurry up to make this happen, but the Passover starts. So they see him come down off the cross, they see him placed in the tomb, and they cannot complete what they were going to complete. As we'll see in a moment, they come back in order to do that. The three women who were there, Mary and Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and it's not the James like James and John, sons of Zebedee. This is James, what the Bible calls the lesser James. Wouldn't you hate to be the lesser anybody? Adam, I feel bad. You're like Adam the lesser, and but we hit. Don't feel bad, because last service we had someone else doing the pastoral prayer. We'll call him Adam the least, so at least we're not, you know, no. I would rather be Adam the lesser in a group of 12 men who got to walk with Jesus, amen. So I don't think he takes it as an insult when we talk about it today. And Salome, or Salami, if you're hungry, uh, this is the wife of Zebedee. This is James and John's mother. If you recall the passage where the mother brings the sons to Jesus and says, Lord, if it be your will, when you come into your kingdom, may one of my sons sit at your right hand and one at my left. And this is where Jesus teaches that the pathway to greatness is through humility. That he who will be greatest should be last, and he who will be last will be greatest. And so all three of these women were present at the crucifixion. They saw Jesus die. They saw the soldiers pass him by because he was already dead and not having his legs broken. They saw him being taken down from the cross and taken by Joseph of Arimathea, a Pharisee who turned to Christ in his time while Jesus lived, to lay him in his own brand new tomb. They watched the stone getting rolled in front of the tomb. And so they knew without a doubt that Jesus was dead and buried. Yet the first opportunity they get, the morning after the Sabbath, Sunday morning, they go to anoint the body of Jesus. It takes about 75 pounds of spices and other things to properly anoint the body according to the Jewish tradition at that time. Now, I'm not sure what they thought. In fact, they asked how are they going to get the rock out of the way. But what they were doing is they were simply acting out of duty and love for their Lord. They had no conception that he was going to be raised from the dead. They did just what you do. The next logical step. Maybe that's some of you here today in the way that you have been following the Lord lately in your life. Maybe it's, maybe it's Easter and you're here because it's Easter and it's just what we do. It's the right thing to do on this special day or it's what good people do. They go to church. Or maybe some of you come every Sunday with the same attitude. Duty. Tradition. Maybe sometimes it's mixed. You come with a genuine love for the Lord. And others, it's just because you're working through the motions. But I am pretty certain that not many of us come to church on a Sunday morning prepared to see a miracle. We don't show up on Sunday and wake up and say, today a miracle is going to happen. Certainly this was not in the minds of these three women as they went to serve the Lord's body and to do what they were to do. Verse 2, look at here. Very early in the morning on the next uh, first day of the week, just after sunrise, like we said, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other the obvious question. Who's going to roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Tombstones were very large and there were several reasons for this. One is that they were intended to keep curious people out. You know, there's always been people who have sort of had this obsession about death and things like that. These stones were large to keep their loved ones safe from people like that, keep people out. 
Another piece is to keep people who had nefarious intentions, steal, grave robbers, people who wanted to steal. In between the last service, someone came up to me and said, you know, there was another reason there was the big stone. I said, yeah, I thought it was a punchline, but it wasn't. He was serious. Um, to keep wild animals out. Totally obvious. You know, and then I thought, well, that wouldn't be good to see like a dog in the town running down the street with Uncle John. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it would be important to have that stone heavy and locking that tomb in. They were living by sight. They were living with eyes that are fixed here on earth and not by eyes that are fixed on faith. I mean, after all, their question seems reasonable, doesn't it? Who's going to move the stone? But when you look at it in light of what Jesus had said previously about his own death, it makes you wonder. I mean, just a few chapters before, Mark chapter 8.31 says, Jesus, that is he, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Verse 32 says he spoke plainly about this. Matthew 16.21 says it even more clearly. After Peter had declared that Jesus was the Christ, he says, from that time, Jesus began to teach that he must die and be resurrected. From that time. This was a common theme in Jesus' ministry towards his disciples. He said again and again, I'm going to be given over to the leaders. I'm going to be killed and crucified. I, he says killed at least. And I'm going to rise again. And when I do, I will be in Galilee waiting for you. This should not have been a surprise to these women. But they, like us, often live their life we're living their life, certainly at that point, with the eyes of this world instead of the eyes of faith. How did they miss it? How do we miss it sometimes? I think our, their heart probably grew numb. Hearing Jesus say that he was going to die was too painful for them, so they blocked it out. We often do this, I think. We don't hear what we want to hear, so we ignore it. Yet again and again, he said it. They grew hard-hearted and numb to this truth, and we can too. We need to be careful in our walk, in the way that we follow the Lord, that we do not grow hard-hearted to the truths, the tremendous, miraculous, unbelievable truths that our faith teaches. That our Lord walked this earth in sinless perfection, died for our salvation, and was risen again that we might have power. And that our own salvation would be proven by the power of God raising his Son from the dead. Maybe we just do not want to embrace the implications of the resurrection. Think about it. If Jesus said everything he said in his ministry and then called his own death and resurrection, and then it happens, that means everything Jesus said is true. That means embracing the resurrection means that you have to come to terms with the fact that your faith can move mountains. Or that your forgiveness is complete and therefore you needn't carry your shame anymore. The implications of the resurrection tell us that no matter what, no, even your interactions with the Lord, your bad choices, your, nothing will snatch you from the Father's hand. The implications are dramatic and serious. Yet we often don't live by them. We don't live by them. Look at verse 4. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. That's convenient. Someone must have gotten in. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. 
For Mark's telling, he appears to be simply a young man sitting there. I remember when I, he's not sitting on the right. Actually, I went to Israel, and when I was there, we went to the various sites. And one of the places we went is called the Garden Tomb. Um, it's interesting. There's some argument that Jesus may have been buried at Gethsemane, in the same place. Gethsemane means um, basically the house of oil or place of oil. There's a wine oil press there. And there's a tomb hewn out of the side of the rock face that for hundreds of years, perhaps thousands, it, it very well could be the place Jesus laid when they took him down from the cross. And you get the small door, you kind of have to walk in to get in there. And when you stand up, it's a little bit larger, not much, but on the right side, about 18 inches off the ground is a flat slab. And then a small sort of little chamber next to them. And I think about walking in and that angel sitting there on the right. They would have come down like this and they would have walked, boom, right into the person standing there. It would have been shocking. It would have been alarming. Later on, crusaders about that time, they made it more of a Christian site, put a cross on the wall, and now this is really where, the, where Jesus lay. But nevertheless, there's a good argument that that's probably where he was. But from Luke's telling, so Mark says it's just a guy in white robe. Luke's telling says there's two angels. They're angels. And they're dressed in white, dazzling apparel. They're dressed in rhinestone togas. I don't know, they're bedazzled. They bedazzled themselves for this moment. The point is, is that this is not a funeral. They are dressed in party clothes because there will be no funeral this day. The one who died has risen. And he's there to be a herald of the truth. He tells them, Christ has risen. He is not here. He, in fact, he says right here, verse 6, read it with me. Don't be alarmed. He said, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who is crucified, but he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. This verse, perhaps the most central statement in the book of Mark, the verse to which everything is moving as you read, all of the action is moving towards Jerusalem to the place where Jesus is crucified, laid, and resurrected. He is not here. He is risen. Look where they laid him. Verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter. This is such a beautiful, the fact that the angel tacks on and Peter. This, is, this verse gives me hope for my life. Because if I were one of the apostles, were Adam, he'd probably be Adam the lesser lesser. But if I were Adam and I did what Peter did, remember Peter denied Christ after the Lord Jesus said that he would. He said, I will not deny you. I will even go unto death. I will die before I deny you. Just moments later, hours later, denying Christ. And what happened when he did? He ran away weeping, bitterly weeping because of the shame that he felt. So the angel tells them, go back to the disciples, tell them to meet Jesus and bring Peter. Peter is singled out. I think about if I sat there and these women showed up and said, the Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. He wants you to meet him in Galilee. I would say that's not for me. He mustn't not want me after what I did. Yet God in his grace, God in his grace, go tell his disciples and Peter. Tell him that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Go tell the others. The angel's message aligns with exactly what Jesus had told the disciples before his death. 
when he predicted his own resurrection. He said, I will be killed, but I will rise. And I will go to Galilee and wait for you there. I grew up in the 80s and it seemed to me, I don't know if it was, but it seemed to me it'd be a time when there were, uh, there was a great scare of, because it was happening, of people being, children being abducted. It was like during the Adam Walsh era and um, the um, America's Most Wanted was starting. There was a lot of fear. And I remember my mother being, she was very fearful during those times anyway. And this was something that really brought her anxiety was the fact that her kids would be taken. And so she would teach us lessons. She would do stranger danger lessons. One of them was a candy bar. She would hold a candy bar out and she'd say, here, do you want to look at She's laughing. I said, here, do you want this piece of candy? I would say, yeah, I want that piece of candy. Let me get that. So I go reach the candy. She'd drop the candy and grab my hand. <laughs> like my heart's in my chest. I'm like, you're trying to give me anxiety now, you know? But I never forgot it about how quickly it could happen that you could get taken. Just a few weeks later, we were at a family member's house where they had no sidewalks. They had the mailboxes that the mail person would drive up and just slip them in. The mail person drives up and she says, hi, would you like the mail? And I grab my sister and I run in the house and I was like, this person's trying to abduct me. The lady's probably like, I'm just trying to give them the mail. We were in Woolworth one time in the Hillside Mall. The Woolworth had parakeets. I do not know why they had such random items at the Woolworths there, but they had parakeets. And I remember being very young. I don't know how old I was, but my mother telling my sister Lauren and I that if we get separated, no matter what, if we get separated, this is where you meet me. This is where I'll find you. You go there and wait and I'll be there. It's exactly what Jesus says to his disciples. There will be a time when we are separated. I will die, I will rise again, and you'll think I'm gone. But I'm not gone. I'm there. I'm looking for you. I'm waiting for you. I'll be by the parakeets in Galilee. Okay? So come there. Final verse 8. Trembling and bewildered. That parakeet line got you guys. You were you're supposed to laugh there, but it's okay. Verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's the end. Despite the empty tomb, the angelic appearance, the rolled away stone, they did not grasp the significance of the situation and they simply fled in fear. More than that, they were disobedient to the words of the angels and Told nobody. You see, their faith in Jesus' words, his works, the miracles, the healing, the feeding of the 5,000, the raising of Lazarus, Lazarus, every single thing that Christ did was not enough to propel them to action. They fled in fear. In Matthew, it tells us that as the women fled, they were probably obviously not going to say anything, they bump into Jesus. And it's at that moment they cling. He says, do not cling to me. He says, tell the others I'll be in Galilee. It was the vision and their understanding was finally being opened that he had risen that motivated them to action. It was not Jesus' death on the cross that motivates people to die for Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus on their behalf that motivates people to die for Jesus. The disciples in the New Testament time, they went to their deaths willingly. Why? Because they saw the risen Lord. They believed in the resurrection because they had seen firsthand that truth. The truth that's left to us 
in God's word. Here in the church, we focus a lot. I mean, church big, not just us. Here in the church, we focus a lot on the death of Jesus because it's all about how do I get to heaven? That's the answer. You're a sinner. You can't pay the debt. Jesus died for your sin. Believe in Jesus. You're going to heaven. Some people call it fire insurance. Other people get out of hell free card type of thing. But if you look in the book of Acts, when the disciples go throughout Jerusalem and they preach Jesus, they do not give the Romans road. They do not say, God has a wonderful plan for your life. But you've sinned and fallen short, and everybody has. And so this is all true. But this is not the content. The content of their preaching in Jerusalem is that he is risen. That he is alive. That the one that was killed is dead no more. And that resurrection proved, proved that God had accepted the death of Christ on our behalf. But Mark, it doesn't end that way. Mark ends with the women fleeing. Every good story has an arc, a narrative arc. There's a progression that makes sense that starts from the beginning, rises to a climax, and falls at the end. In fact, the technical, it's Freytag's Pyramid. It's people who might be in literature would know about that. It begins with the sort of the laying of the groundwork called the exposition. This is setting of the stage. These are the people. This is the part of the plot. This is where it all began, and they sow the seeds of the conflict that will erupt later on. You have rising conflict where you have greater intensity of opposition to your main character, your protagonist. We see this in Jesus. As he walked towards Jerusalem, there was growing opposition by the leaders. There was greater and greater pushback to his message until finally the climax, he's crucified. Everything we read in Mark feels like it goes to that moment. When you consider the falling action, the fourth phase, you see Jesus being taken down off the cross. Everyone crying, it's all lost. We're lost. Laying him in a tomb and rolling the stone in front. Next day, he's alive, full stop. There's no resolution to the story. The word, there's a French word, denouement. Everything's not tied up. There's too much left out there still. So Mark ends so abruptly. Why would he do that? Why does he leave it sort of a to-be-continued or like an ellipsis, a dot, dot, dot? I think it's quite simple. I don't think the story's done. I think the story goes on, and it's intend, Mark is intending that when people read his gospel, they are answering the rest of the story themselves. They are wrestling with the implications, and the truth of that story is played out in their life. You know, when we went through Mark, I call it Mark. We often call our books Mark, Romans, things, but those are just short, shorthand verses or shorthand names. A better name for Mark would be the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ according to Mark. So when we think of Mark, it's nothing about Mark. It's just Mark's testimony. It's eyewitness evidence of what Mark had seen. Well, in that way, you know, we are all living gospels. We are all living gospels. Our lives are intended to be living narratives of the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, one day my life, when complete, will be the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Adam. The gospel of Jesus Christ according to Kathy, according to George. Our lives are testimonies to what Christ has done on earth and finally in us by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. For some of us, the story of the Christian life is left without of any kind of progression or resolution or denouement. We get saved one day and that's it. 
We believe he died for our sins and we call that, okay, I'm in. I've done what I need to accomplish. Everything else from here is just gravy. But we never use gravy. We just stop. We focus on Jesus' death on a Friday. We live in Friday when we should be living in Sunday. Where we should be living our lives in the power of the resurrection, the implications for the resurrection in our day-to-day life. I mean, we have a hard time finding the grace of Jesus Christ to have the ability to deal with the traumas of our life and give them meaning. Or to deal with relational conflicts in the present in a way that is enabled by the Holy Spirit in humility and forgiveness. Or we don't write into our story the idea of confidently facing the fears or unknowns of the future. Brothers and sisters, may it no longer be. May we no longer live just out of hell. Let us live in the life that heaven has promised. Let us live in the resurrection and the truth and implications thereof. Let us begin the work of living out our faith with zeal and trust and complete this story in our lives. So how do we do that? It sounds abstract. How do we do that? Well, the answer is pretty simple. It's been around for thousands of years, and the answer is faith. We write our stories by faith, living out the implications of the resurrection. So the first point is three, sort of to help us think about what all the implications of this truth are. First is finish writing the gospel of your life by faith that you are forgiven. Can you imagine what life would be like if you were completely freed from guilt about the things that you have done? Many of us look to Christ for our salvation and we're told that we're no longer guilty. In fact, that we've been declared innocent, but we still, we put the handcuffs back on. We've been released from a prison cell. The door has been sprung open, yet we choose of our own accord to go back in. The door is open. You have been freed. You are forgiven. Imagine a life without living in shame. Carrying shame about who you are or what you've done and how that would empower your life. If totally freed. That's the power of the resurrection in our life. This is the life that we read in the New Testament. This is how we see the disciples doing what they do. What if you believed you were forgiven and you would believe that you were accepted by that forgiveness? That you no longer need to prove anything to anyone. Imagine that. Living your life completely severed from any self-awareness, any sense of self. I wonder what people are thinking. I wonder, that one's especially, you know, I live and die on Sunday morning sermon. How's my week went? Ask me how last week's sermon went. If last week's sermon didn't go like I hoped it would, my week is bad. It's that sin that so easily besets. But we all have something like this. People who say, well, I don't care what anyone says about me. That's not true. Everyone carries a sense of acceptance and needs a sense of, we're built this way. What if we were freed from trying to people please? What if we were freed from the penalty of our sin? We embraced and we lived like it. I'm no longer going to hell. Now let's live in that Thanksgiving. How would life look different? My goodness. Our church would be transformed. Our world would be transformed. The church would be a place of attraction rather than promotion. We wouldn't, be, we wouldn't need to send out, come here on Easter, put billboards over here. There would be people running to the closest church because of the life they see in the believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you going to live like it? Are you going to live like the tomb is empty? Second, finish your gospel 
by faith that you are wholly healed and no longer helpless. When God, when you chose to believe and the Lord came into your heart, filled you with the Holy Spirit, you were set apart, stricken with a sign, sealed until the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. You are made special. I talk about it all the time. You're God's fine china. You're God's fine china. I was one of those paper plates that had like macaroni and cheese, had some grease on it. It was like good for nothing. Good for nothing. In fact, it was intended to be thrown out. Yet God in his mercy took that and transformed me, us, into his special, holy, and set-apart utensils for his use. We are special. We are set. What if we lived like that? Imagine living a life saying, no, I'm God, God loves me and knows that I'm his special chosen child. And the hurts of this world and the difficulties we face would be nothing compared to that truth. What if we believed we were actually healed? Now, this is something that I've been thinking about for a lot of years, and I'm sort of wrestling with the implications of this. I, I try to deter, you know. I believe that the moment you trust the Lord and, are become his, and you become his child, that you are healed. The traumas you carry, the struggles that you bear, the sin that feels so deceptively sweet, all of those things, you are healed from those things. The Christian life, the meaning of sanctification, of growing in Christ-likeness, is beginning to see reality as it actually is. That's sort of when you're saved. Well, when we're not saved, our glasses are blocked out. When we get saved, we get a glint of light. And as over time, we walk with the Lord, we wash ourselves in his word, we trust him, those glasses get lighter and lighter, and you see reality as it really is. I believe one day I'm going to stand before the Lord and I'm going to say, thank you for healing me. He's going to say, you were healed from the beginning. Why didn't you live like it? You've been freed. But we have to accept it by trust. When everything tells us we're not healed, we're still broken, we're still messed up, we still have these struggles, by faith believe that you have been healed. You have been healed. And you're no longer helpless. You're no longer under the power of sin, no matter how strong that temptation feels. I know there are things as a recovering addict, I know very well the feelings of needing, of feeling like I have to act out in this compulsion. I know the strength of temptation that can happen in lots of areas. And I know you do too. Yours might not be drugs like mine was. In fact, mine's not even drugs. Drugs just an expression of a deeper thing. But we all have something to which we just so easily slip into. Here, let me give you an example. When you're standing next to someone who says something unbiblical and foolish, how badly do you want to say something? Okay, I know me. I'm like holding on, like just I need to leave the room and I'll just go because I need to say something so bad. Sometimes that's what life can be like when we're wrestling with our temptations. I bring that out because that some of us would say, well, I don't have any big things. I'm not an addict. I don't do this. I don't do that. Look, everyone's got something. And if you don't got something, that means your thing is lying, right? Everyone's got, you catch that? Everyone's got something. And if you say you don't have something, that means your thing is lying, right? Everyone's got something. And you've been freed from that power, finally. Finish your gospel by faith that you have a hope. You have a hope. That hope is sure. It is certain. Our hope is not like the world's hope. The world's hope says, I hope I get that promotion. 
I hope the Cubs win the World Series. I hope it doesn't rain next week when I'm supposed to have my picnic. These are uncertain events that we are just really desiring badly will not come to fruition. That is not our hope. We have a sure hope. When the Bible talks about our hope in Christ, it means that is a certain event. And we look to that event and trust and we say, this will happen. And because of that, I can deal here in the present. If you really read the Bible, especially well, the New Testament, and you look, I would say the whole Bible, but it's really obvious in the New Testament, especially in Paul. If you read, it's all about, well, when Jesus comes back. Like the whole, their whole jam is about Jesus' return. It's all about the eschaton, is the word, last, last day. It's all about them. The reason they can live with such power, strength, and trust in the Lord today as they, at that time is that they saw the risen Christ and they knew he was returning. What if we lived our life like the tomb was empty and we knew Jesus was coming back? And the injustices that we feel today, the struggles that we struggle with, will all be resolved permanently forever. Forever. Do you ever consider how long eternity is? Where are you going to be in 15 trillion years? You're going to be alive. Those of you who have trusted the Lord will be in his presence. And it's not going to be like 15 trillion years in church, I can tell you that. It's going to be awesome. Imagine every good thing you've ever seen in your life and none of the bad. Perfection. Bliss. We can deal with the things today and live with resurrection power because we have hope for that day. And we know that our hope is not just a thing. It's a person. The Bible says our blessed hope is Jesus Christ and his return. The things we deal with today are understood and weathered through the eyes of that future hope. So when you feel like life is hopeless, remember, Christ is risen. So we've read the first half of the story. We see how it ends. The question is, is what are you going to do? How are you going to craft the rest of your story? What conflicts do you want to see resolved in the power of Christ? We all have them. What griefs are you going to write into your story to be a testimony of how Jesus can be a consolation to you, even in the most painful times? What victories over sin? What are you going to include as a testimony to the mercy of Jesus, Jesus towards you? For me, that's like my big chapter. That's like my major chapter. The mercy Christ has shown me. Pick up your pens. The page is blank and waiting. As you write, consider all that Christ has done. Consider the resurrection and believe that it serves as the validation of everything God says about your forgiveness, your healing, and hope. And may you write your Gospels like the tomb is empty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your plan of salvation to bring sinners back to yourself. Lord, we admit that we were wayward, that we were lost, that we had no hope. And because of who you are, Lord, you made a way. Through the life, the death, and the resurrection of your Son, Lord, you have shown us and proven that you have accepted his death on our behalf. Where he died, it's as if we died. Where he was counted as guilty, we are counted as innocent. 
Lord, let us not be like those who hear the message and run in fear. Let us, Lord, write our gospels well in the truth of the resurrection, proclaiming boldly, Lord, that which your children have proclaimed for thousands of years. We pray that you would do that in us, Lord, for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.